0: Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Late Night Linux Extra. I'm Joe. And this time I'm going to have a chat with Chris, who you know from various episodes of Late Night Linux Extra and from the Chromebook segment on the main show. And Gary, who is a friend of mine who I've known for years from various Linux events and stuff, and I've been wanting to get him on the show for ages. I know that both he and Chris have got decent audio set up, so I thought let's have a chat and uh, record it and see what happens. And I think it turned out well. The question that I put to them was, how did you get into Linux in the first place? And what would be different for people now who are getting into Linux? Now, all three of us kind of got into Linux around about the same time, 10 or so years ago, me and Gary a little bit longer than Chris, but roughly a decade-ish ago. And one thing that we totally forgot to talk about was pre-installed Linux hardware and how that has changed and so I thought I'd better preempt that before we start getting a lot of angry emails. That is something that is massively different these days. Before we get into it, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to latenightlinux.com support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com contact. So we started with me asking Gary how we got into Linux in the first place.
1: First time I used Linux was, it must have been sometime in late 2007. It's a pretty normal story, I guess, for people getting in Linux around that time where I had an awful laptop that was I think like a on M with 256 megs of RAM. It's running Windows really, really terribly. And I just wanted something a little bit more performant. So kind of started digging around and kind of found this Linux thing. And then actually went to, I was in school at the time and spoke to my IT teacher there who was a Gen 2 user, say, gives you an idea of, I guess, how long ago it was. And he said, yeah, like, you know, stick Linux on it. And at the time, I didn't have a decent broadband connection at home. It looks like a 256K DSL connection or something awful like that. So he burnt me two CDs. One was Ubuntu 7.10 and one was Kubuntu 7.10 and said take this home give it a go so yeah went ahead and tried to boot the ubuntu one and it just wouldn't boot for some reason i can't remember to this day what it was but the kubuntu one however did boot so that was really where i got started was this uh live cd of kubuntu 710 got that installed and I guess the rest is history to be honest
2: so yeah i guess for me um actually a little bit later than gary even though i think you're a bit younger than me gary um So I moved in with two of my friends, one of whom had always had an interest in Linux, but we both followed the same pattern of getting fed up with Windows, trying to switch to Linux, and not being able to get it to work fully as a desktop operating system and not having enough mentors. So in the end, what we did is created a headless box. I think it was like Open Media Vault or something like that. And also like a print server, and we put Webmin on it, and started to teach ourselves Linux. My my friend had also just got a job, which was giving him some hands-on Linux experience, and then I kept trying to install SuSE, <laughs> and um, so like I never had what Gary said about my IT teacher would teach us Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, macros. And that was it we never spoke of linux at all in my school it department so anything i did with computers was outside of that and then that was it was long after this that we got the headless server and then i kept trying to install SuSE, and i had a multi-monitor setup and it just wouldn't work and i would flip back to windows and then i joined a band and the keyboard player was running Debian on a quite similar system to what you've just said, Gary, uh, a Celeron with like 256 meg of RAM, and he had open box on it. And um, then with his help, I started with Linux Mint, Cinnamon, and then I managed to get everything working uh, with a few things he helped me with. Then I moved to XFCE because it was lighter. And then... Eventually, he kept giving me insults for using Linux Mint. He was like, "It's it's not a real distribution." Now. That, that's not necessarily my opinion, but that was what he kept saying. So I switched to Ubuntu, and at first it was Zubuntu, and then Ubuntu Mate. So that was around ten years ago, and then I started to install it for my family, and I became quite an advocate for it, which I've dialed back from. Uh, since then. And I've just been running it ever since for myself and my close family. We're all running desktop Linux as our daily driver operating system.
0: I've told my story quite a few times, so I'll try and be brief with it. But essentially, I had a terrible old desktop machine that was a P4 3 gigahertz with like 512 of RAM. This was probably about 2007. And windows was just a nightmare on it and i had learned about nLite and other ways to slim down windows with services and everything turning them off and the point was that i wanted to make it run as fast as possible to run music software so i could have more tracks and more uh synths and stuff like that and as a result of that i ended up with a completely insecure tiny xp i think it was called with just all of the the blow ripped out, including all the security stuff. And I thought, this is not a good situation. I don't want to be using banking with this. And my brother had given me some, I can't remember what it was, some old uh, discs. Well, I suppose it wouldn't have been old at the time, but it was several CDs. And I'd never bothered to check it out. And um, I think I tried that and it, it wasn't very good. And then I looked into it and heard about Ubuntu, So I tried that and that was the old GNOME 2 days and I thought, "Mm, you know what, this isn't quite as slim as it could be. Let's see if there's anything a little bit lighter. And so I tried Lubuntu and various other stuff, Slacks at the time, which I think was a KDE 3-based distro and um, eventually just settled on Zubuntu as like one lighter than GNOME. And uh, I still to this day think, and I'm sure that, Winpress would disagree with me, but I'm convinced that Zubuntu is a a hair lighter weight than uh, Ubuntu Mate, but I might be wrong. But anyway, so I settled on that and I've been using it ever since. I did have an EPC, an E901 that I did a lot of experimentation with and booting from the SD card and all sorts of stuff early on, and that was really nice to get into uh, Linux with. But I just no matter what I've tried, I've always stuck on Ubuntu. It's interesting that before we started recording, Gary, you said that you are running the snap of audacity now that's something that is very different from when we all got into Linux, which was roughly around the same time that if you wanted to have the latest versions of applications, then you needed to have up to date distros like Arch or you know the non l t s the interim releases of Ubuntu, whereas now, someone getting into it can have a totally rock solid LTS Ubuntu base, say, and have snaps on top of that.
1: Part of the reason for that for me is that I've, I started off on an interim release and I think I've just rode that interim release wave all the way through. And there are times where I've switched off to different distros, especially in the early days. But yeah, I think when we started out, right, I think one of the reasons that I originally switched away from running Kubuntu was because I wanted to try KDE 4. And that wasn't there, so I found a distro where that was there, whereas you know now with snaps and other packaging formats like you say there's just there's not the need to switch distro all the time, and you can keep on a nice, stable base and have whatever apps you want. yeah, I was
2: thinking about this the other day because my early pain with SUSE was a lot to do with sound because pulse audio was in that transition sticky period and I get things like popping speakers or the sound wouldn't work or I was running sound over HDMI and it was all the teething issues then I wasn't really aware because I wasn't in the community as such that people were extremely angry about it at the time I for me it was just I thought that's what Linux was and it wasn't until I met the keyboard player in the band who was like well it's not always like that and it's getting better all the time and I think. The period since then that I've noticed, having used it constantly and been more confident to give it to my family especially, is that it has, I think, become a bit more of a viable, fully polished desktop product, which still only has, what, one to two percent share of the desktop operating system market. But it is, you know, I've installed it for people with very little onboarding other than you know, I'm always very much like, I don't try and make it windows. I just explain what the differences are and explain how it works. But there's a a healthy number of people I've done that for who never ask for my help because it does just work. And if they do need, those packaging formats have really helped get proprietary software and newer versions of things in a way that isn't the same as some of the PPAs and dependency hells and repo problems I had at the beginning of this sort of 10-year journey. Now, the only time that's happened recently is with Wine, which it can happen with because there's so many dependencies and 32-bit dependencies as well. But other than that, I can't remember the last time I got into a real muddle because of wanting newer software in that way.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's given me the confidence to put it on family's machines packaging format related, I guess, is the fact that those packaging formats have brought with them a lot of the proprietary and more well-known software that people use. I remember at the start of the pandemic, I'd given a friend of mine, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago now, an old XPS that I had, and I'd installed Ubuntu Mate on it for them, and at the start of the pandemic, they were like, oh, I've been asked to join this call on this Zoom thing. I don't know what it is. Uh, how do I join it? Like, how do I even get it installed? I'm on the website and there's like 17 different versions for Linux and I don't know what version I have. And like, when the answer became open the App Store and search for Zoom and install the one that says Snap on it next to it, that for me really cemented that this is something that normal people can use.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd echo that. Like, My wife is now podcasting as well, because we need more podcasters, obviously. Um, And uh, she uh, installed OBS. And uh, the first time I knew of it, she came to ask me for help with the configuration option. She didn't come to me and say, how do I get OBS stood up on my laptop? She just managed to install that. And that was great. Obviously, she's been using it for a few years and is aware of various ways to install software. But I do think I've definitely noticed in the last 10 years a positive progression of polish, regardless of where you're falling and which distribution you're using, plugging things in and then working, sound working, looking for most packages, and they're there. The only cherry on the cake which is so often said is if you could
0: get Microsoft Office and the Adobe Suite if you wanted it. It will come, though. I, I can feel it in my bones that it will come via a snap. I don't know when it will be, and I've got no inside information at all. This is just pure speculation, but it just surely is going to go that way.
2: You would think, you would think, given what Gary said just then about the number of proprietary packages that have a packaging format that's quite easy to use. And, you know, if you were to create a GitHub repository. Not that you would because it's proprietary, but if you were to present Zoom to add to the Debian repos, everyone would be like, um, what's this doing? <laughs> all the time. But you you have to fool it somewhere in pragmatism as well, because if that's what someone is using, I have French lessons, I have to use Teams. So I've had some advocates in the community say, well, you should just say you're not using it. It's like, okay, well, then I won't be able to sort of attend the class. Like, I I don't, have enough sway to stop them using it, so yeah i I kind of agree with Joe. I think they will produce some kind of packaged Microsoft Office at some point.
1: I can see it happening as well, I think even if it just ends up being some kind of wrapper around office online, there will be some way of having a desktop integration that works well with office that just has to be I mean, I work for a relatively large company and mm-hmm. Ubuntu is now a first-class desktop citizen that we can elect to image ourselves. And I think that the biggest pain is not having Microsoft Office. So I think it has to come. Okay,
0: this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free 7-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com late-night-linux, it includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux. So something else that would be different these days for me is USB sticks. Now, I don't know if it was the same for you guys, but when I first got into Linux, it was all about burning CDs, ISOs onto CDs and how the Ubuntu ISO would always be just exactly at that limit of 700 megabytes or whatever. And so it made it harder for me to try different distros i suppose usb sticks like were a thing then and you could dd them but there wasn't stuff like etcher and stuff back then was there or did i just miss all that
1: no as far as i can remember that stuff didn't exist and the other thing that didn't exist was the option to boot from usb in the bios back then Mm. just wasn't there
2: yeah i still have to this day on my shelf at home a stack of old burnt distros to try out on cd and dvd and also there's a thing called plop which always makes me laugh but the, the plop uh, boot manager which boots from cd to chain load to a usb on a machine that doesn't have a bios that can boot from a, a usb natively and i think the SuSE trials that i was talking about i bought a magazine i bought a linux magazine i can't remember which one that had a cover disc to enable me to do that so and the internet wasn't as fast. And so that has helped definitely. Plus, the ease with which you can virtualize and also VPS providers as well that have free trials like you're able to spin up different distributions, especially if you're looking at expanding your knowledge into the command line. And because computers are more powerful as well, so you can virtualize things more easily without affecting the host system. Experimenting has definitely become easier in the last. Ten years that since I started and where
1: I am now. So I think one of the things that's gotten much better in the last ten, maybe more years, is hardware support. So I remember uh, the laptop after the one that I mentioned before. It had a an Nvidia GPU and a Broadcom wireless card, which was a bit of a recipe for disaster back in the day in getting anything to run. So I've got I don't I don't want to say fond memories, but I've got memories certainly of. <laughs> And, you know, booting Ubuntu, I think it's probably, you know, 904 or something by that point, and having to drop to the command line to install the proprietary NVIDIA driver, like download it, mark it executable and run it, and then it would, you know, compile itself and install on your machine. Or even using things like NDIS wrapper for the Broadcom wireless card, because there was no other way of getting Wi-Fi working on that machine. Um, And I was still living with my parents at the time, so... Installing the Wi-Fi driver meant waiting until someone wasn't using the computer downstairs so that I could go and plug my machine in with an Ethernet cable to download the Windows driver and install the n wrapper packages, and then pray that Wi-Fi worked after that. Yeah, whereas these days it's
0: very rare that you'll boot up a laptop and Wi-Fi won't work, especially with a mainstream distro. Maybe if it needs proprietary firmware, Debian won't work or whatever, but... Uh, I can't even remember the last laptop that had any sort of hardware quirks at all. I mean, especially now if you buy an all Intel laptop, it's very rare that you're going to have any problems
1: with it at all. Yeah, I think the only time I've had that recently is with an old ThinkPad um, that I installed Debian on. So it was, I think it was an X41. So it's only got a 32-bit CPU, Uh so I installed Debian on it because it's one of the few distros with 32-bit support still. And yeah, I did have to pull down the proprietary firmware for the Wi-Fi card, but as soon as I'd done that, it was absolutely fine.
2: Yeah, I think um, the keyboard player in the band I mentioned, his first advice to me was always buy something not new and stick to Intel as much as possible. And I'd agree, like, most of the time now, there'll be a few paper cut bugs like the touchpad on a laptop I had once would not work when you resume from suspend. I had to write a custom script to basically unload and reload with mod Probe or something that was scripted after I resumed from suspend. But generally it's got a lot better, although there's a creeping trend of real tech Wi-Fi cards that's coming back. And they're like the old Broadcom ones where, because the Bluetooth and Wi-Fi are on the same chip basically which is common now the 2.4 gigahertz and bluetooth shares the chip they won't work at the same time under linux and there's a subset of cards that you just start thinking like i haven't had to consider actually physically replacing the hardware of a wi-fi card on a machine for ages but now i might have to for this particular machine because of course on windows the driver works with some kind of special source and on linux it's got a lot better if you run a very recent kernel but you still have this problem where you can choose bluetooth or wi-fi but not have both at the same time but on in general i would agree a lot of the time you can plug and play a lot of usb peripherals and i think that windows has now borrowed from linux's uh example because windows to its credit now supports a lot of hardware out of the box So i can remember having to go to a working Windows machine when installing Windows years ago, download the installer for the Wi-Fi card onto a USB, and then take it back to the machine. And that is rarer on Windows now. And that was one of the things that I really liked at first with Linux. When I first started using it 10 years ago, you boot a live CD or a DVD, and everything is working. Like The computer is ready to go
1: once it's all fully loaded. See, I think I've just ended up doing the same thing that I would have done 10 years ago in buying a machine that's two or three years old. So the machine that I'm using now is a ThinkPad. It's an X1 Carbon, but it's not the latest one. It's like a seventh gen i7. And broadly, the performance of that is good enough for what I need. So I've just kept to buying machines that are three or four years old. And I don't know, maybe new hardware is much better now, but I just haven't really changed. What about gaming then? Now, with Proton and Wine and everything,
0: we are in a significantly better position than we were 10 years ago, but is it a realistic platform to game seriously on? I don't think it is, but certainly casual gaming is a lot easier. Yeah,
2: I am a casual gamer, definitely. I think it definitely has got a lot better. Things like Lutris and Proton have really helped a lot of games run with very little issue on lots of hardware and it's great but if you want to be a serious gamer things like anti-cheat for example it just means you can't play online because linux running anything with any kind of abstraction layer immediately flags the anti-cheat so you can't play competitively online with some triple a games now one thing i have noticed and i'm not a heavy gamer but i do when i'm looking at people benchmarking there are some AAA a games coming out that actually manage to run better <laughs> under linux with various abstraction layers than they do on windows with the same hardware sometimes so yeah i definitely would say it's really improved whereas if you go back a quite a long time you just be like, well, I boot Windows to play games, and then I go back into Linux when I've got serious things to do. And I don't think it's as clear-cut as that anymore, but it's not quite, I never need to boot into Windows either.
1: I don't think I play any games that have really been made in the last 10 years. But the support for those games now exists on Linux, which it didn't 10 years ago. So I was in the same boat as you, Chris, I think, where... I was rebooting my machine into Windows to play those games. But then I found myself getting into that cycle of, well, I'm already in Windows, so I can just fire up the applications I need and do what I want to do, and would slowly find myself over a period of a few weeks booting into the Linux partition less and less. But, I mean, I don't have a Windows machine in the house anymore, and I haven't needed a Windows machine for a good three or four years now, I don't think, for anything that I need to do. Are there a few games that I'm probably missing out on? Arguably, yes, but I don't play enough games to really miss it. I think the most modern game I play is CSGO, and that's had Linux support for, it must be, five years or so now.
0: So all in all then, I think that it's clearly a better time now to get into Linux than it was when we did. You're going to have a better experience, and just everything about it is going to be better.
2: I would... Definitely 100% agree with that. I would not want to go back to when I first started using Linux. You know, obviously my own knowledge has increased, but the first laptop I run Linux as a daily driver on, I had to mute the volume of the speakers before I shut down. Otherwise, a huge static pop would be emitted from them, which just didn't happen on Windows. And it was something to do with the hardware initialization. And all of those kind of things have really disappeared to a certain degree. So yeah, I I think it's there's definitely a noticeable improvement in the last decade.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. I wouldn't want to go back to having to do the things that I did 10 years ago and nor do I think that I don't know, sound a bit old, but like kids of today, they've like got an iPad in the pram or whatever. <laughs> and I just they haven't got the patience to deal with things like installing GPU drivers and dropping to a terminal feel like most people now they just want something they can turn on and it works and if they're a bit more advanced they might go to the effort of installing a distro with a nice GUI installer or something but they're probably not going to go to the efforts that we went to 10 years ago to run Linux on our machines.